Well, hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcasts, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. How do we make godly decisions as believers? Uh, And parenthetically, how do we know um, if the decisions that we're making are actually putting us further into God's will or further out of God's will? How do we discern sometimes mixed signals that we get uh, in moments? We're trying to make a decision. Uh, Making decisions, you know, as a Christian or as a human, really, in general, making decisions, uh, it's just part of life. It's something that we do all the time. Every second, every minute, we're making decisions. Everything from what kind of toothpaste do I want to buy, which, by the way, is a super stressful decision because there's like 5,000 different kinds of toothpaste. Um, Toilet paper is pretty easy now. You just get whatever's there, and you get what you get, right? Um, Right now, we're using the kind that you have to use like 20 different squares, you know, at once. Anyways, decisions are just part of life as a Christian. We make decisions. Part of life as a human is we make decisions. Uh, and some decisions are easier than others. Some decisions are really, are really easy. Some decisions are really complicated. There's all kinds of biblical examples of hard decisions that had to be made by individuals. I think of Noah, for instance. Okay, can you imagine Noah? Uh, hey, God tells you to go build a giant boat, to spend your entire life work building an, a boat. And, and everyone's laughing at you thinking you're crazy. Uh, And you just say, well, oh, it's going to rain. And everyone's like, what's rain? What is that? I mean, imagine the decision that Noah had to make. I I think of Daniel in the book of Daniel where where he... um, basically was put in this awkward position where he wasn't allowed to, to pray to God. Um, he was only allowed to pray to the king of, of Babylon, and he had to decide in that moment, am I going to pray and uh, ultimately get thrown into a den of lions, or am I going to honor the Lord? I think about Abraham, who had to, to decide whether he was going to sacrifice his son. Now, we read these things in, 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 in foresight, and we kind of look back and go, yeah, that was the obvious decision. But in reality, he, he's probably really wrestling with that decision. I mean, is that consistent with God's nature? Does God really want me to sacrifice my only son? I mean, is that really uh, what God wants? And you know the story. You know how it unfolds. But my point is that it was a hard decision. I think of uh, David and when his son Absalom abdicated and and, uh, basically uh, took the, the throne, took the kingdom from David. And he had to decide whether to go to war with his own son. I mean, these are hard decisions. I think of Joseph in the New Testament. You know, having to decide whether to marry Mary or, or, or whether to, to believe that what she's saying was true. Is she supposed to be saved and, and a virgin for him, but yet now she's pregnant? I mean, what's up with that? Hard decision to make. I think of Esther put in this position of power, having to decide whether she could help her people or should help her people or not. I think about Paul and Barnabas who couldn't, couldn't quite agree about whether to bring John Mark along in the book of Acts. I mean, just decisions, decisions, decisions. There's, there's so many instances in the Bible and in our lives. We also have a lot of instances of people making the wrong decisions. I think about Pilate having to decide what to do with Jesus. Do I send him to the cross, give the people what they want, even though I know what's right? Of course, Pilate made the wrong decision. I think about Peter Uh, Should I deny Christ in this moment of of intense fear? I think about Saul in the Old Testament. Should I wait for Samuel to show up or should I just make the sacrifice myself when we are going into battle with the Philistines? Of course, he made the wrong decision. Even little decisions, decisions that are just blitz, like just quick decisions like Uzzah. In the book of Kings where Uzzah is bringing, it's actually in Samuel, pardon me, he's bringing the, the, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and it begins to, tip and topple off the cart. He reaches out his hand to try to stop it from falling into the mud, instantly dies. Okay, that was a bad decision. Whoops, he didn't have a whole lot of time to think about that. It was just a decision, right? I mean, this is part of life. Part of life, part of being a human is making decisions. I can think of some contemporary, more modern illustrations of how hard it is to make a decision. I was just watching a documentary about the Spanish flu in the 1918, uh, which, you know, I don't know if you've seen that yet or not, but it's, it's kind of eerily uh, similar in some senses. The difference about this one was it attacked young people. It attacked healthy young men, uh, particularly in the military, just swip, swip, 
It just swept through the military, killing all of these people. And Woodrow Wilson had to make a decision about whether to send reinforcements, because it was during World War I, whether to send reinforcements to the battlefield to win the war and to back up the troops that were there, knowing that probably 60 to 80% of those young men would die on the boat to get there because they would all infect each other. I mean, talk about a hard decision. That's brutal. I think about people like Harriet Tubman that had to decide after she just barely escaped from slavery herself, got to freedom, and she had this deep compulsion to go back and to continue to help others get free. She had to make that decision. And decisions are just part of life. But how do we make them? And how do we know whether the decision we're making is in the will of the Lord or not? And you know, for us as believers, the decisions that we make have we have to consider whether it's the will of the Lord. We have to. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 6 through 11. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So Paul's saying there's a distinction between you, children of light and children of darkness. And as children of light, here's what you're supposed to do. Verse 10, try to discern what is the pleasing or what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. So as children of light, our goal in life should be to please the Lord. How do we please the Lord? We please the Lord by walking in his will. We please the, the Lord by considering his will. It's the very definition of a believer, someone who is transferred out of one kingdom into another kingdom, who cares about the economics of one world and now cares about the economics of another. Paul also says in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. In other words, part of being a Christian is transforming your mind to the point where you make godly decisions, where you constantly are making decisions that put you into the will of the Lord. So our text for this morning, how this relates to that, our text this morning is a really interesting story about Paul having to discern what the will of the Lord is in a really particular and convoluted, confusing sort of a situation. And I think we can learn some practical things from it. But before we get into the practical, let's take a look at the text. Let me introduce you to the narrative uh, and, and sort of kind of reveal to you a little bit of this tension that I think Paul's feeling in this moment. So Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, uh, there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So this is just some travel details. Paul is trying to get back to Jerusalem. If you remember, for the last probably three or four or five chapters, Paul's emphasis has been getting through his missionary journey in order to return back to the city of Jerusalem. This has been his goal. He's been collecting an offering from the Gentile churches to bring to the, the Jerusalem church uh, for reasons that we'll get into in a moment. This has been his laser focus. And he's been sharing the gospel along the way, planting churches, encouraging the saints, but his focus has been getting to Jerusalem. So he's made it all the way down into Asia Minor. He spent a little bit of time with the Ephesian elders. We looked at that last week, encouraging them. Um, and then he set sail down the Mediterranean coast from city to city to city on these little one-day journeys, one-day trips, and finally makes his way all the way down to Tyre. Tyre is basically in Syria. It's a very northern part of, of Palestine on the Mediterranean coast, and he spends about a week there. Verse 4, the second half, and through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? Now imagine how frustrating that would be. You've spent years collecting this offering so that you could in person deliver it. You, you feel like the Lord is calling you and directing you and funneling you to this one thing to go to Jerusalem and deliver this offering. And then the brothers and sisters in this church at Tyre, 
come and in the spirit tell you that you shouldn't go. Imagine the tension in that. Imagine the tension in that, the frustration in that, that Paul would be feeling. Verse five, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, then went on board the ship and they returned home. This is really a cool thing because Paul didn't plant this church. In fact, he just met these believers. This is like his first time meeting probably the church in Tyre. Um, And they instantly have this family-like connection. They escort Paul out to the beach. They pray with one another. There would be tears. There would be hugs, probably not six feet of distance. Um, This really sweet kind of uh, farewell moment. I love that about the body. I love that about the body that sometimes when we don't even know each other. I mean, when I went to Uganda, I spent two weeks in Uganda, you know, I just met these Christians. But within like a week, we were like weeping to say goodbye. We were like, man, just love each other so much. That's the bond and the unity and the union that we have in Christ. It's really an amazing thing. Verse seven, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers. You notice that's just what Paul did. When he rolled into a town, he went and he found the brothers. Uh, brothers even just meaning all of the Christians, okay? And stayed with them for one day. On the next day, verse 8, we departed and came to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is probably a city that you've heard of before. It's a coastal port city. It was really designed to be the port for Jerusalem. Uh, It was completely a Roman city. It's where Pilate had his house. Herod had his summer home there. Um, It's actually Jesus got sent to Caesarea when he was on trial. Beautiful city on the blue Mediterranean coast. I was able to visit there when I went to Israel. So they're in Caesarea, just outside of Jerusalem. And we entered the house of Philip. You might remember Philip. Philip was one of the seven, as it says. Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. If you remember back in Acts chapter 6, when there was some tension between the Hellenistic Jews and the Jerusalem Jews uh, about the widows being served meals and things, the apostles ended up recruiting seven godly men, spirit-filled men, to be the diakonos, the deacons. Uh, And Philip was one of those. He was also an incredible evangelist. He went and brought the gospel to the Samaritans, and then he brought the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Lord picked him up and literally just carried him away. So this is the same, uh, the same character here. Let me find my place. Uh, so verse nine, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now that's just so interesting to me. It's just so interesting. It doesn't say what that means. It doesn't say what they did. It just said that they prophesied. And I love this about the New Testament. The idea of a young woman, probably, these are probably high school age, what we would consider high school age women, are considered um, to have, be walking in a prophetic gift. It's just so cool. The New Testament is so inclusive of women's place in the church. You know, the church gets a rap sometimes for for being sort of man-centered or whatever, but the early church really was the first to pioneer the place of women um, in the congregation, them having such value. I mean, the fact that Luke takes a minute to mention these four daughters of Philip and their ability to prophesy is just really stunning. So verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now you might remember Agabus. I know this is just a lot of background, but just bear with me, okay? This is the the commentary work here that we need to do. Agabus came down from Judea. You might remember him from earlier in the book of Acts. He prophesied earlier that there was gonna be a famine in Jerusalem and um, he was right. Okay, he was right. So he's a tested, a road-tested prophet. Okay, what this guy says, usually, uh, it would seem, is from the Lord. So he comes down from Judea. Judea's in the mountains. He comes down. Verse 11, coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, don't think like a belt around your waist. Think like a girdle, probably a long piece of fabric. He takes Paul's belt and binds his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here's the scene. Agabus, this old prophet, this old kind of Old Testament type prophet, he comes, takes Paul's girdle off, wraps it around his hands and feet, just like an Old Testament prophet would have done, just like Ezekiel playing with figurines to illustrate um, the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem. You know, uh, so, so Agabus, he, he wraps it around his hands and feet and he says, whoever owns this belt is going to be arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem. Everyone obviously knew it was Paul's belt. 
And imagine Paul, I can just see the tension in his face. I just imagine Paul had a lot of wrinkles, you know, and, and wrinkles aren't a bad thing. Wrinkles are a sign that you felt. Wrinkles are a sign that you've cared. And Paul, man, that guy had a rough life. He was always getting beat up. He was always getting arrested. He was always getting mistreated. Um, he had an amazingly fruitful ministry. But I can just imagine Paul just, just with like a tear rolling down his cheek, knowing the reality of what he was walking into in Jerusalem, as the prophet Agabus illustrates it. And then instantly what is seen by the prophet Agabus triggers this just, this kind of overwhelming um, unified voice of all of Paul's company saying, don't go, Paul, don't go. Why would you go? Why would you get arrested? Let someone else take the offering to the church in Jerusalem. Why don't you stay here? We don't want you to be arrested. We want your ministry to continue and to be effective. But Paul knew in his soul what he had to do. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he needed to be the one to deliver the gift to the Christians. So Paul answers in verse 13, what are you doing weeping, breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, note, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now that's our text for this morning. What do, what do we do with it? What do we see here? The, the main thing we need to bring up, I think, in this passage is this question. And the question, it, it, you can't avoid it. Was Paul right to go to Jerusalem? I mean, here you have all of the believers in Tyre saying, don't go. Okay, and it even mentions that they were in the spirit. And then you have Agabus coming down who doesn't say not to go, but he says, if you go, you'll get arrested. And the question really comes up, Paul, are you doing the right thing here? Are you in the will of the Lord or are you in disobedience? I think that's the first question we really need to ask and answer before we move into the practical piece of this sermon. Okay, so was Paul doing the right thing? I want you to consider uh, just a few things really quickly in answering that question. Number one, Paul was led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Flip back a page to Acts chapter 20. Paul was led by the Spirit to do this. Chapter 20, verse 22. It says, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, Paul says, constrained by the Spirit. Note that word, we'll come back to it. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only, listen, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, he says in, in chapter 20, verse 22, is constrained by the Spirit of God. Okay, so the first thing I would consider was, was Paul wrong? Was he wrong? It seems pretty clear there that he, he, he knows that he's constrained by the Spirit of the Lord. He says also in chapter 19, 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, and go to Jerusalem. The second thing I want you to consider is that Paul has a record of listening to the Holy Spirit. He's got a pretty good track record. Acts chapter 16, where we named our church after, Philippi. Uh, the Holy Spirit said, don't go to Macedonia. Or pardon me, the Holy Spirit said, don't go to Asia Minor. And he didn't. He listened. Uh, we have a good record of him listening when he had a vision of the Macedonian call in Acts chapter 16. What does Paul do? He goes. Okay. Paul was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. I don't, I don't think that he's purposely trying to um, get out of the Holy Spirit's leading or guiding. I also don't think Paul was someone who liked getting beat up and arrested, by the way. Okay. I think if he, if he was listening to his flesh, he probably wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. And there's many times where Paul actually avoids a beating. I don't think he liked getting beat. Okay. Um, also, the scripture doesn't say anywhere that Paul was wrong here doesn't say it anywhere. You know, there's no commentary in the scripture itself that, that alludes to the fact that somehow Paul was disobeying the Lord. So I think we can rule that out. Also, Luke seems to be, Luke, the author of Acts, seems to be writing the narrative in such a way that, that, that 
Paul is actually fulfilling his destiny here. He's fulfilling his will. He's fulfilling God's will, pardon me, what God has asked him to do. So just some things to consider. Now, what's my opinion? What's my view? Um, take it for whatever it's worth. Uh, but I, my personal position is that Paul was doing exactly what the Holy Spirit had asked him to do. Now, if you're a critical thinker, you're thinking, but what about the fact that these guys in Tyre said not to go? Well, Agabus didn't say not to go. He just said what was going to happen. In chapter 20 verse, or 21, verse 4, yes, we have a group of people that says in the Spirit, they said not to go. I like John Stott's uh, basically solution to this. He says the solution may be to draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. Between prediction and prohibition. In other words, meaning Paul... Um, or they may have been prophesying not so much not to go as much as it is what was going to happen, and then it sort of got mingled with their opinion about what he should do. That the Spirit revealed to them what was going to happen, and then on their own they kind of said, well, if that's going to happen, then surely it must be the Spirit's will for you not to go. Okay, now you can t- pay your money, take your choice. Uh, you can study that more on your own. It's been debated. It'll continue to be debated. Regardless, you know, the Bible has no problem painting um, men as being flawed. So, Paul very well could have been in the wrong, but I tend to believe that he was actually fulfilling what God had asked him to do. Now, that's all background to our text. But here's the real question that we need to ask. If Paul was so sure, which he seemingly was so sure, so sure how do we get some of that? I mean, don't you, don't you want to be that person that leads with laser-focused conviction? I mean, that's what I want. Like, I want to be that leader that's like, this is what God has called me to do and everything else can just melt away because I know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, anyone who doesn't want that, I think, isn't thinking critically. I mean, Paul, just, he just, he charged forward in, in leadership and as a believer with laser focus, man. And anything that wasn't supposed to be, same with Christ, right? Christ just had this absolute focus about what he came to do. And I want that. I want to be able to make decisions in such a way that I feel like I, I know what God's will is. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. I, I want to give f- a five-level filter for discerning God's will. A five-level filter. And I believe these principles are things that Paul uh, would have considered in making his decision. I believe that because we're getting them from Paul's words. Okay, So a five-level filter, and I have a little illustration for you here, and you can hopefully see it up on your screen. I want you to think of this filter like a funnel, okay? Think of a funnel. Funnel's larger at the top, it's smaller in the bottom. Now, I have a water filter that I use when I go backpacking, and, uh, and basically, you're just squeezing water that you pull right out of the lake or right out of the, you know, whatever it is, and you, 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 you pass it through the filter, but the filter has sort of different stages. Um, the, the big, obvious junk, like the big rocks and the floating bark and the moss, that gets filtered out right away. And then you have another sort of level of a filter that takes away sort of the smaller things. And then you have another level of a filter that takes out the microscopic things. And hopefully what you're left with is pure water. So I want you to think of this five-level filter as as that. I want you to think of it as a funnel that's going to help you get into clarity about what God's will may be in a particular decision. Um, Now, the, the first the first, you know, few points in this, the first few levels are pretty obvious, okay? They're pretty obvious, and then as you get down smaller, they become less obvious. So let's just jump right into it. Number one is God's revealed ethics. Now, you'll notice that with each of these points, I'm talking about the fact that God has revealed it. Uh, I think a lot of times we spend so much time thinking about what God hasn't revealed, and we get in our own heads freaking out about what God, what God hasn't showed me. God hasn't given me a sign. God hasn't told me. But in reality, a lot of times, we need to look harder at what he has told us already. So level one in this, this, um, this five-level filter for good decision-making uh, is look at or check out God's revealed ethics. Uh, this will weed out probably like 60% of your decisions. If you are just familiar with what God has said, is appropriate for his people, okay? So let me, let me give you some questions to ask. When you're trying to make a decision, ask this question. Is this decision consistent with God's expressed nature? In other words, is what I'm trying to decide, is it consistent with what God has told me he is okay with and is not okay with? Now that might seem kind of obvious, like duh, Sam. Uh, except as a pastor, that's like the main question I get. Is the Lord okay with 
blank. And almost like nine times out of 10, it's an obvious no. It's an obvious no. And, and I don't need to hear from the Lord to know that. I just need to know the word. I just need to know what he's already expressed and already said is something that is appropriate. Ask questions like this. Is it harming the sanctity of life? Is it harming the sanctity of God's creation? Is it harming the sanctity of God's name? If it is, then you've filtered it out. Don't do it. It's, it's fairly obvious, right? Now, what is God's revealed ethical will? I mean, what is it that God has already revealed to us that, that he desires for us to do? Well, Micah 6, 8, okay, Micah 6, 8 speaks to this in the Old Testament. He has told you, oh man, what is good? Perfect, I love verses like that. He's told you, here it is, oh man, what should I do? Here it is. He's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Well, that's enough homework for me to keep me busy for the rest of my life. You know, the, real, the reality of Israel's rebellion had nothing to do with God not speaking to them. It had everything to do with them not listening to what God had already said. You know, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't come in and, and magically, mysteriously prophesy that they were gonna be exiled. They were just saying what God already said he was gonna do. If you guys keep walking in idolatry, keep sacrificing your children to false gods, keep not honoring the Sabbath, you're gonna get exiled. I mean, that was the reality. A New Testament example would be Galatians 5. Paul says this, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, he's like, in other words, I don't even need to give you a list, but I'll give you one anyways, because I know you're gonna want one. Uh, now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just in case I miss something, things like these. <laughs> so those are the things God doesn't like. Those are the things God doesn't want us to do. Those are the things that Jesus came to die to pay for us to get away from, okay? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience, I skipped one, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and listen to this, against such things there is no law. What should I do in my life? Start there. Start there. There's a lot of things that we know to do simply from what God has revealed. Now, the New Testament is not an ethical instruction manual. A lot of people think it is. They think that, that this book is sort of like an encyclopedia of sin. Okay, what do I do? What do I not do? Okay, that's not the point. That's not how scripture is written. Scripture is actually a narrative of God's redemptive work throughout human history. Okay, a narrative of God's redeeming work throughout human history and even, even beyond, before human history. Okay, so that's how the Bible is written. But in spite of that, we still have some obvious ethical imperatives that you can't get around. There's, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, there are things that are just simply obvious. And nine times out of 10, when someone is wrestling with whether to do something, they just don't like the answer that they already know. Okay, what does the Lord think of it? What does his nature think of it? So what do you think? Is Paul committing a sin by going to Jerusalem? No, of course not. Of course not. So that's layer one. Let's look at level, level two. So God's revealed ethics. Number two, God's revealed values. Here's the second thing you need to look at. How does this decision line up with God's revealed values? And what I mean by values is what does God care about? Okay, when you are trying to decide what you should care about, think about what God cares about and care about what he cares about. Okay, uh, it's, it's really, really simple. What does God emphasize? Um, if point one was about what not to do, this is a point, this point two is about what to do, remembering what to do. So here's some questions to ask yourself. Uh, is this decision, in this decision, is this furthering or valuing what Jesus came to live and die for? Is this furthering or valuing what Jesus came to die for? We are an extension of what Jesus started. So our lives should be in line with what Jesus had already began to do. Well, what did Jesus care about? He cared a whole lot about the church, didn't he? I mean, do you remember his conversation with Peter? Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. 
Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Great, feed my lambs. I mean, he just keeps going and keeps going. And Jesus' point to Peter, who at that point was sort of like this leader um, to, to the other disciples, is if you love me, love what I love. And what does Jesus love? He loves his bride. He loves the church. So it drives me crazy when people claim to be Christians and hate the church. I understand that there's some baggage. I understand that there's things that we need to work through. But part of being a Christian is loving what Jesus loves. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves the lost, doesn't he? I mean, you just see that. He was about seeking out the counted out, the down and out, the lost, the broken, the least, the poor, the hurting, the prostitute. These were the people Jesus went after. So when you're asking yourself, is this a decision that the Lord would approve of, ask yourself, what did Jesus emphasize? He cared about the lost. He cared about the broken. He cared about the kingdom. He cared about the Father. He cared about unity within the body. I had a decision a couple years ago that I was adamant that the Lord was calling me to do something, but I realized if I did it, it would break apart part of Christ's church. And so I didn't do it. Because I knew that Jesus' value is on the unity of the church, not on the disunity of the church. Just read John 17. And really what this gets into is you have to start questioning your motives. Why am I wanting to do what I'm wanting to do? Ask yourself, what is it furthering? Is it furthering me or is it furthering something else or someone else? Is it for the glory of God or the glory of me? Is it for the building the kingdom of God or is it for building the kingdom of Sam? Those are hard questions. But in order to filter out your decisions, you have to ask those questions. What is my motive? Well, what was Paul's motive? What was Paul's motive in Acts chapter 21 here? Why did he want to go to Jerusalem so bad? You know, what's the deal? We know from scripture why he was going. For one, he was going to help the poor. Jerusalem was a city that was bustling with pilgrims. People would come from all around the ancient world and make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order for, to celebrate particular holy days, Passover, uh, Day of Atonement, Pentecost. And as such, some of t- sometimes they'd get stuck there. And they had no way of getting home. They had no one to take care of them. They had no family at home. So the church became this adoption network for people um, that became Christians that really had nowhere to go. So Paul knew that, and he collects all this money from some of these more affluent and rich uh, uh, Gentile churches like Corinth in order to help these guys. He's collecting the offering to show unity between the Gentiles and the Jews. That's admirable. He's collecting the offering to encourage them with the fruit of the mission that Paul had just been on. Paul had just done three missionary journeys all throughout the ancient world, each of them yielding massive fruit. And this offering was a symbol of encouragement to the church in Jerusalem that God was working throughout the ancient world. These are good things. Paul is following ultimately the example of Christ. He's following the example of Christ. This is what Jesus did. Jesus was generous. If you can turn there quickly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul gives a little bit of commentary uh, about this particular offering that he was taking to Jerusalem. And he's encouraging the Corinthians, who were sort of immature spiritually, he's encouraging them to take part in this offering, to not miss this opportunity. And look what he says specifically. Chapter 8, verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine, Again, he's compelling them to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Okay, so Paul is, is reasoning and pleading with the Corinthians to give into this offering to the Jerusalem church. Because why? Because that's how Jesus functioned. That's how Jesus lived, Right? I mean, he's just copying his Lord. He's copying his hero. My son found this lock on the ground the other day. It's just like big, bulky lock. It's no good to me. I don't have the key. He found it. He said, Dad, can I have it? I said, sure. He's been carrying this thing around like crazy. And he, he thinks it's a tool. He calls it a tool, right? And he asked me the other day, because in my shop I have pegboard with all my tools hanging because I'm kind of an organized freak. Um, he, he's like, Dad, can you put some nails in my bedroom so I can hang my tool like you in your shop? 
And I just like, that's so cool that my, my son wants to be like me. And, and he sees what I do and he thinks it's cool and he wants to mimic me. This is what Paul is doing. Now listen, listen, don't tune out here, okay? There's a very intentional parallel that Luke is stitching into this narrative between Paul and his journey and Christ and his journey. Do you remember Jesus' three-year ministry? His face was set to Jerusalem. Why? To die for the sins of the world, to purchase his bride, to redeem the brokenness. Paul, like his master, is following in the steps of his master. That's Christian maturity. You, you do what Jesus did. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians. While he's sitting in, pra- sitting in prison, probably in Rome, three, uh, chapter three, verse 10 of Philippians, he says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is copying his hero. He's copying his hero. He knows what's gonna happen if he goes to Jerusalem, but that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. So the second level of our filter is, it's very, it's very simple. Is it valuing what Christ valued? Is it giving yourself for what Christ gave himself for? Are you in line with his life? Uh, number three, third level of this, this filter. Is it in line with God's revealed limitations for you? The limitations that the Lord has put around you. Each of us have this unique set of limitations that God has given us. Uh, you know, we live in a Western world where every Disney movie is about breaking out of our limitations. So-and-so said, I couldn't do this, and I did it anyways, right? And we have all these stories about, about becoming more than anyone ever said we could and, 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 and living beyond what anyone ever expected. Now, that's great. But in reality, most of life is actually learning how to live within your limitations, not how to break out of them. Ask yourself these questions. Would this decision pull you from what God has already told you that you're supposed to be doing? Okay, what, what has God already told you? Is it going to be uprooting you out of the planter box that God stuck you in in order to plant you somewhere else that God hasn't actually asked you to be? I had a really, uh, just a good friend of mine, actually Victor Borchard from Calvary Crossroads. Uh, I remember before I planted this church, I was stressing about this thing. I was like, what if it doesn't work? What if I move my family out here and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like a really wise pastor that he is. He says, you know, God doesn't hold you accountable for what he hasn't asked you to do yet. He doesn't hold you accountable for the church you're not pastoring yet. And at that point, we didn't even have a church. We were just, it was all ideas. It was just talking. And in reality, you know, we spend so much time thinking about God's will out there. Lord, what are you going to do someday through me that we're missing God's will for what he's already given us to do? Growing in the planter box that we've already, he's already planted us in. Sometimes saying Yes isn't God's will. It's actually saying no in order to say yes to what he's already told us to do. It's about clarifying the focus that he's already given us. It's about freeing up bandwidth so that we can focus more clearly on what he's already told us to do. It's about being content in the situation that we're presently in. Now, sometimes it's addition. Sometimes God wants us to move. Sometimes God wants us to change. But oftentimes, his revealed will is just to be faithful with what he's already given us to do. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Listen, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of the Lord for my life? That you would blossom and flourish where you've been planted. And we don't like that because the grass truly seems greener on the other side, always. But in reality, faithfulness often means being planted where or growing where we've been planted. Listen to what Oswald Chambers said. He said, God plants his saints in the most useless places, we say. I should be here because I'm so useful. You know, I should be the guy with the big church. I should be the guy with the big company. I should be the guy um, off doing this and that and doing all the traveling and do whatever your thing is. Jesus never estimated his life by the standard of, great, of greatest use. God puts his people where they will glorify him, and we are not capable of judging where that is. Each of us have been given by God a certain measure of limitations, and it is on us to live within those limitations by his grace. Ironically, Paul's dis- decision to go to Jerusalem would actually give him more limitations as he would get arrested. Number four. 
So we have God's revealed ethics, God's revealed values, God's revealed limitations, and this one will hit quickly, God's revealed counsel. In other words, is the Lord speaking through other people? Now that one gets confusing, obviously, in our text. Got confusing for Paul as soon as somebody brought up something that seemed to kind of be counterintuitive to what he had already believed. But there is a biblical mandate in counsel to go and ask people that could speak to things. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Paul himself said in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So part of making good decisions is having people that can call uh, BS, which is Barbara Streisand, by the way, it's not anything inappropriate, can call BS on you and say, uh, no, that's actually not true. You have a wrong motive. You're actually going against what God's already asked you to do. Part of that, uh, part of the counsel is, is inviting that uh, into your life. And point number five, point number five, God's revealed conviction. Now, remember I told you this is a filter and, and the smaller we get, the harder it gets to really discern. The harder, it's pretty obvious if something's ethical, oftentimes, but it's not so obvious sometimes, at least to everyone else, whether God has spoken to us personally that we are to do it. So Paul had this conviction. He had this conviction that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. And even though others disagreed with him, Paul knew what he had to do. He knew what he was supposed to do. And make no mistake, Romans 14, 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So at the end of the day, your counsel might disagree with you, but at the end of the day, listen, you have to make the decision that you believe is right before the Lord because you will stand before the Lord and give an account for the decisions that you have made. Paul was confident that the decision he was making was the right one. I want to pull your attention again back to chapter 20, Acts 20, verse 22, when Paul kind of explains this conviction. He says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, note this word, constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by a Spirit. If you look up that Greek word, it's, you could translate it this way, bound, tied, imprisoned, forced, compelled, restricted. So literally, the Holy Spirit is binding Paul towards this mission. Binding, constricting, forcing, leading, compelling Paul to deliver this offering to Jerusalem. He can't get out of it. And what's ironic is that his friends are concerned about him going to prison. His friends are concerned about him um, being bound in prison force. And what they don't realize is he's saying, I'm already bound. I'm bound by this compelling that Christ has called me to do. It's interesting. Paul started every letter that I know of, at least, every letter that he wrote, he always started it this way. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus for you. See, Paul saw himself as a slave. Now, that's kind of a, a dirty word to, to, to use in our, in our current idea, but, but the idea of slavery in the New Testament was a very different idea. Paul said, I choose to be a slave, a willing slave of Jesus Christ, meaning that all of my faculties, all of who I am, it is all given over for the purposes of Christ. And Paul was free in prison because he was a slave to Christ. Does that make sense? You couldn't arrest a man who's already been arrested. He's already captive to the will and the mission and the calling of Christ, and he's constrained by it. And nothing that these guys say in terms of their opinion about whether he should go is going to change that. I love what Martin Luther said when he was literally um, on the stand being tried. Asking, they were asking him to recant what he had said. Uh, Martin Luther, literally the, the reformer, Martin Luther, listen to what he said. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Listen, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive, he says. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. Martin Luther, like Paul, is a man constrained by the will of God. So I asked in the beginning, how do we become men and women that are, that are absolutely laser-focused, that can know what to say no to, 
that can be confident that we are doing what we've been asked to do, you become constrained to the will of God. You become a bondservant. You, like Martin Luther, say, you guys are preaching a false gospel, and I know it to be true, and I cannot get around it, so I will not recant because I know the truth of my Lord. How do you do that? You get really close with Jesus. You get close. Why was Paul able to be so aware of the will of Christ? Because he spent so much time with him. Ironically, the people often that come to me asking questions about God's will, I ask him a simple question. When was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you read the word? When was the last time you had any kind of interaction? It's been a while. How do you expect to live a life that pleases someone that you don't even know? How do you expect to, to, to please your, your, your spouse when you don't even understand who they are and you spend time with them? You want to be on the will of the Lord, be with the Lord and you'll know his will. That's how God leads Oswald Chambers, he says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. We need to be people that are so consumed with pleasing the Father, so consumed with what he thinks, that we have the freedom to release ourselves from the bonds of what everyone else thinks. That's the freedom that I desire, to be so consumed with what he thinks of me, that I don't care what everyone else thinks of me. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That could be translated a slave of Christ. Paul was free because he was a slave to the one who loved him so well, the one that knew exactly what he needed in his life. Now, let me wrap up here. So you need to ask these five questions. You have a decision. Is it in line with God's revealed ethics? Is it in line with God's revealed values? Is it in line with God's revealed limitations for you? Is it in line with God's revealed counsel? And is it in line with God's revealed conviction? Has God asked you to do it? I want to end with just three quick points because some of you are saying, okay, Sam, but I've already made a lot of bad decisions. Okay, and, and sometimes that grid doesn't really help, I'll be honest. Sometimes you're going to have decisions that that, that, that that filter just doesn't work. Okay, what if I already made a decision and now what do I do? What if I already made a decision and I'm convinced it's the wrong decision? You know, one of the things that kills me all the time is when people come to me and they say, I think that I made a mistake and I'm no longer in God's will. So now I need to divorce my wife or now I need to whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to also understand how it works after we make decisions. So just, just remember three things about the decisions that you have already made and then we'll end and cut to some Q&A. So three things to remember after you make a decision. Number one, remember God's providence. Remember God's providence. We think of God's will like the red line, you know, on Indiana Jones when he's flying and there's a red line on the map and he just, okay, we think of it like, like if I'm off the red line, I must be out of God's will. That's not how God thinks about his will. God providentially, sovereignly uses our decisions to get his ultimate will accomplished. That's the reality. So whatever you decide now becomes the will of the Lord for your life. So you're saying, man, I married somebody. I shouldn't have married that person. I'm not in the will of the Lord. Uh, think again. You married him. Now that's God's will. Okay? God's will now is that, now obviously there is, we can get into this at another time. There's all kinds of reasons biblically for divorce, abuse, and infidelity, and things like that. But I'm talking about the person that just thinks, you know what? I shouldn't have married this person. Maybe this isn't God's will. Uh, it is now. It is now. There is no red line that you're following. God's providence works in our decisions. And God providentially gets us where we never would have gotten before. It's interesting. Paul said in Romans chapter, uh, uh, it's actually Philippians 21, 421. No, just scratch all that. All that's just in the garbage. Uh, Paul said at one point, I can't remember where, he said he wanted to go, it was Acts 19. He wanted to go to Jerusalem so that he could then go to Rome. And then everybody's telling him, if you go to Jerusalem, you're getting arrested. You're not going anywhere. You can imagine Paul going, well, I thought that was God's will for me to go to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. The interesting thing is when he goes to Jerusalem, as we'll see, he gets arrested. 
and they ship him to Rome. <laughs> and then he writes this amazing greeting at the end of Philippians chapter four, which he wrote from Rome. He says, Caesar's house greets you. He was literally infiltrating Caesar's house in Rome as a prisoner because God providentially used his decision to get him exactly where he needed to be. So did Paul make the right decision or not? I don't exactly know, but I know that God's providence works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's sovereignly and actively working. Number two, if you've already made a decision, remember God's plan. Remember God's plan. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says it very clearly. For this is the will of God. Are you ready for it? For this is the will of God. Are you ready? Your sanctification. See, we think so much that God's will is about what we go do. But in reality, God's will oftentimes is about what God is doing in us, not through us. He can do stuff through us anytime. The hard work is what he's doing in us. And so you're saying, I made bad decisions. Does that mean I'm out of the will of God? No, it means God is providentially using those decisions to do his ultimate will, which is to sanctify you. And to sanctify you means to make you look more like Christ. That's his goal. Number three, and this is really important. Don't tune out. Don't go make lunch. Listen, believe the gospel. If you've made a decision already, believe the gospel, okay? Believing the gospel means you understand this. He comes in to your outcome. It's not as though you make a bad decision and then God's like, well, you're out of my will, peace. That's not how it works. He comes into the decision with you. He walks out the decision with you. He's faithful. He comes into that, that reality, that result of your decision and he walks it out with you. I'm just so thankful for that. Remembering the gospel means that it is his life living through you that matters. This is, this is the beauty, okay? If you think too much about whether or not every decision you made was the will of God, you're not believing the gospel. If you, if you start looking through every single thing you've ever decided in your life and asking, was that the will of God? Was that the will of the God? Was that the will of God? You're not believing the gospel because the gospel is not about your decisions. It's about his decisions. His, Jesus' perfect decision. His life now living in you and through you. Believing the gospel is saying, I have made wrong decisions, but my, my saving grace is that his perfect decisions have now been imputed to my wrong decisions. When God sees you, he doesn't see the screw up, the failure that made wrong decisions. He sees his son, Jesus, that made the perfect decisions. He sees you through the lens of Jesus' perfect track record of decisions. That's why Paul said, it's not I who live but it's Christ who lives in me. It's his decisions that matter. So at the end of the night, in the daytime we should labor to please the Lord, but at night when we go to bed, we remind ourselves that Jesus' perfect life is now imputed to me. I'm gonna pray. Hopefully we have a couple questions. Um, after I pray, we're gonna take literally like a one minute uh, intermission. So if you need up and go to the bathroom and grab a glass of water or whatever. Um, you know, you could, you could do that. And we come back, we'll just grab a couple questions, try to answer them really quick. So, Lord, thank you so much that you're God that comes into our decisions. Um, Lord, I hope that all of this practical stuff is helpful. Um, I hope, Lord, that like Paul, we could have that precision, accuracy as to what we're called to do, what we're called not to do, what to say yes to, what to say no to. Lord, I pray that your word would just enrich our souls, God. And now as we, we take a minute to, to answer a few questions, um, Lord, I just pray that, um, that you would work, that you would speak, um, and that you would use, uh, Lord, my words in Jesus' name. Amen.